You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. This is the CRM Archaeology Podcast. It's the show where we pull back the veil of cultural resources management archaeology and discuss the issues that everyone is concerned about. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the CRM Archaeology Podcast, episode 156 for January 30th, 2019. I'm your host, Chris Webster. On today's show, we talk about the RPA grievance procedure and the value of driving across the country for a job. So gas up your car and forward your mail because the CRM Archaeology Podcast starts right now. All right, welcome to the show, everyone. Joining me virtually in Reno, Nevada is Bill in California. Yeah, I'm in California. <laughs> You're in Reno. Agree. <laughs> yes. I'm not in California. No, but you're in Calgary. Yes, I am. <laughs> nice. So somebody actually commented, uh, what was it on Twitter or something like that, and said, where are you from? I listen to the CRMR podcast. You never say where you're from. You say where all your hosts are from, your co-hosts are from. So I tried to word this, and apparently I completely failed. Because <laughs> so, you guys <laughs> were trying to demonstrate that, no, you're not, in fact, in Reno, Nevada. So I'll rewrite this again, and we'll try, <laughs> we'll try on the next episode. The, the honest truth is nobody's in Reno, Nevada. It's, that is true. That's <laughs> uh, because everybody's in California. Army of one. That's right. All the cool people moved to Canada, though. All the all the hipsters. Yeah, you're right about right. that. We all want to go to Canada, ultimately. <laughs> oh, that's I have right. to go to the doctor for free. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Nothing's nice. free here. Nothing's free. Nothing's free. All right. Well, today we are talking about this topic that we put in the uh, – in our episode ideas list uh, almost a year and a half ago, and it's moving across the country for a better life, as I mentioned in the introduction. But before we do that, we're recording this on January 27th, and on January 23rd, all RPA members received an email. Uh, an RPA, for those that don't know, is a Register of Professional Archaeologists. It's our only professional organization for archaeologists that you know, is not some sort of association affiliation that does conferences and things like SAA, things like that. This is just a register of professional archaeologists. You can be academic, you know, CRM, doesn't matter as long as you meet the qualifications. But this is their grievance statistics for the fourth quarter of 2018. And I want to bring this up because on the last episode, we talked, uh, Bill and I were at the Society for Historical Archaeology uh, meetings in St. Charles, Missouri at the beginning of this month, uh, January 2019. And we talked to Aaron and Corey, who go back and listen to the episode, and, and you can talk to them. They set up a Facebook page for basically called Anthropologists, comma, Yes Us Too, to, to note that you know people are, are in, in the Me Too uh, movement right now are actually in this space, and we need a safe space to talk about those issues and to talk to somebody else. And that's, how they, that's why they set up that Facebook group. It's a, it's a closed um, private Facebook group. And so there's that. So we talked to them about that. And then Bill, and th- this will get to the, we'll get to the grievance statistics in a second from the RPA. But Bill, you also went to um, a, a big session that was well attended at the SHA around all this stuff. Can you describe that just a little bit? Yeah, I did. I went to the um, uh, anti-harassment uh, forum. I can't, I think it was on um, Friday afternoon. And it was well attended. I mean, it was standing room only. And one of the things that they were talking about was uh, trying to get some kind of um, like statement from some of these larger organizations uh, against harassment, so that if any of this stuff happened, that there'd be some kind of uh, some kind of grievance procedure or some system to bring a complaint against an archaeologist that was causing problems in the field or just basically doing harassment beyond the university. Mm-hmm. So in the in the um, uh, forum, there were several uh, companies that talked about how they they had more formal anti-harassment training and they had a grievance procedure and it was very clear that action could happen swiftly at a company. Um, there were statements about how the government and universities kind of lagged behind on that and that a lot of times the entire uh, grievance could go through and no one is found culpable and nothing happens really besides the victim recapping their uh, situation again and again, and then them maybe getting a monetary buyout. But a lot of times, you know, nothing, there was no real penalty to the individual who perpetrated the the harassment, right? So in that conversation, I was thinking, 
the SHA or the RPA needs to be the one who really steps up because one of the complications they were talking about, especially when it comes to field schools, is that they're happening under different uh, administrations in different jurisdictions, right? So the professors may come from one university, the students come from several universities, the funding comes from you know the Smithsonian or the NSF or sometimes the state university system. So if a problem happens, you know the the question is where where do we go? You know, do we talk to the the person who caused the problems university? Do we talk to the person who's in charge? Do we talk to the funding organization? You know, where does the grievance go? Mm-hmm. And so I thought the RPA would be the the prime candidate because it is an overarching organization. And I understand that not all professors are members of the RPA and not all CRM folks, you know, qualify for the RPA. But as a professional organization, that's kind of the only recourse we have. Yeah, it really is the only recourse we have. And so let's let's bring up the let's bring up this email, um, the grievance statistics that we that we received. Uh, I want to look at this right now. So this is for the fourth quarter uh, of 2018, so October to December, and there are seven metrics here. It looks like um, so there was one query to the register regarding ethics and conduct standards. And while I'm not 100 percent sure what their definition that is, my only my only thought is that somebody contacted the register and says. Either do you have ethic and conduct standards, or is this thing ethical that I'm doing? <laughs> that's that's the only thing I could think of. One person queried them, which hey, great. Um, there were five registered investigations ongoing, so that must be things that were opened and haven't closed uh, prior to the fourth quarter of 2018. Uh, one registrant case dismissed for lack of sufficient evidence or follow up by complainant, which is disappointing because somebody must have uh, somebody must have made a complaint to the RPA against somebody else. And then never followed up with it. Uh, presumably, the RPA tried to follow up with them, and then didn't get a response or something. I don't know. You know. Obviously, we have no idea what the details are, but it says lack of sufficient evidence or follow up by complainant. And then the rest are zeros: zero registrants receiving admonishment or censure, zero registrant cases referred to the standards board for action, zero registrants currently under suspension for a period of time, and zero registrants terminated from the register. Now, I think you can read this email in one of two ways. You can read it as man, we are a solid bunch of people. Like we are doing it right. Nobody has any grievances against us. We're all awesome and we're all ethical and we're all amazing people. But I think we all know the reality is that's probably not the case. And I don't think we're using this tool that we have um, to the fullest extent of its ability. Now, I don't want anybody to put any witch hunts out there or to you know put a grievance against somebody because they they laid you off from a job and didn't turn you on, didn't, didn't bring you on to the next project. I mean, unless there was a reason behind that, that you feel is, is violates the ethical code of stand, code of conduct. But that being said, um, I, I don't think we're using it enough. Like for example, uh, I, I used the RPA before I was even eligible for the RPA. I was not a member of the RPA, but I knew about it and I knew what it was. And I filed a grievance against somebody that I worked for, um, a long time ago. It was probably my first couple of years in archeology span and, it was just a, a bad situation. I thought the person was actually violating ethical standards. I looked up ethical standards and I wasn't belonging to any other organization. I hadn't even been to an SAA yet or anything like that. So I didn't know anything. And I looked up professional archaeologists, found the RPA, found their code of conduct and realized this person is, is violating like two or three rules in the code of conduct. So I filed a grievance against them through the, F, through the RPA because they are RPA. And you can do that. And that's why I want to bring that up on this show is that you can actually file a grievance against somebody and not be part of the RPA. And this is important for field technicians to know because right now, in general, field technicians can't be part of the RPA, but you can use the RPA to your advantage. One of the things about using this strategy uh, and stating that it's an underused tool is that it talks specifically about um, individuals who break the code of conduct. I mean, I'm here on the grievance procedure page and it's saying, you know, the, the person uh, responsible for investigating allegations of registrants violating the code of conduct or the standards of research performance. Okay, so that's they're they're saying that the RPA has a grievance coordinator who I can guarantee is not paid. Mm-hmm. I mean, most of these organizations are fueled by volunteers, right? So the grievance coordinator is the individual who's making sure that RPA members are maintaining the codes and the standards, and they're protecting the rights of those who have been violated by um, uh, RPAs. Or, or they're they're protecting the rights of RPAs who have been accused of violating the code and standards. Okay, so this goes back to back when the SHA uh, forum was happening. I looked on 
the RPA's code of uh, standards, and, and there is nothing about anti-discrimination or anti-harassment on here. Uh, if there is, it's definitely coded under one of their um, uh, bylaws, but there's nothing <laughs> that says that a professional archaeologist should not discriminate or harass individuals. So if you're trying to bring one of those kind of cases, it's more difficult because they're not violating the code of conduct because the code of conduct doesn't actually specifically say anything about that. That's amazing too, isn't it? And didn't you mention, um, I, I can, I'm confusing it because I'm doing six things at once here. Uh, did you mention that there was somebody in the RPA uh, on the committee at the, at the SHA talking about this? Yeah, the, in the forum there was an RPA uh, board member who said that the you know the RPA is taking this. They're not taking this lightly. They actually are trying to be proactive, and they've formed a task force, which I guess as far as January, early January of 2019, hadn't met yet. And, and I believe it's along similar lines as to what is happening at the SAA. This is one of those um, perfect storm years where I end up somehow being harangued into going to both of the conferences mm-hmm. but i'm going to the saa and i was looking at that uh basically trying to decide how many days i want to go there right uh, and i saw that they do have several anti-harassment um uh forums and discussions and they also have a task force too so you know the saa is trying to move forward with this their meeting is happening in a few uh months i don't really know where the rpa is at on this uh, i guess they have a task force formed so it's not like they're not doing anything. Um, mm-hmm. I guess maybe we could email them and ask them what they actually are doing. Yeah, indeed. Stephen, what are your thoughts on this, especially as somebody who's you know was in this country? Uh, and I don't know if you were part of the RPA officially or not. Let me know. But can you still be RPA in Canada, or is there another organization up there? Um, I, I'm still in RPA, listed on the RPA. Is that the uh, correct wording? Um, I'm a member. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think so. I, I pay my dues. Yeah. Um, and, and quite a few, uh, archaeologists up here are as well, but it doesn't have the same, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it's kind of, yeah, I, I don't know how to describe it. Cause, um, like for other professional organizations that have the word like professional in it, like, um, where, where they have like professional yeah. lists and stuff, those are things that are actually like recognized by the government where you have to. Mm-hmm. Um, basically get a license from um, the province or whatever. And and so like, you know, if you're a professional forester, you have a license from the province to be a forester. Um, and so there's like a legal, like legal grievance process where you can basically lose your license. Um, we're not professional in that no. way, right? Like um, outside of maybe Ontario. <laughs> and, and, you know, the RPA is certainly not, you know, like doesn't have that kind of power. Um, and, and, and so yeah, it, there's a certain amount of, uh, you know, the, the people who are members of the RPA in Canada tend to be people who also do work in the U S um, and, and, mm-hmm. or, or want to use, you know, th- those credentials in, in air quotes there, um, a, as a means mm-hmm. to, you know, bring in more work, that, that sort of thing. But I, I don't think it carries any right particular way and i do sometimes worry that it's um completely misleading um because we're not professional in the same way that other organizations are professional that said um i didn't ever get that email i I just checked my various email accounts so i don't know if i'm on a like do not email me list or um if 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 i like (laughs) opted out or something but i i think that as far as the grievance process goes um, the, the biggest problem with the grievance process is because it's not, you know, um, one of the licensing professional organizations. Um, you know, you can do the job and not be RPA. And and I'm not sure that mm-hmm. RPA can do anything but kick you out. Right. Like what 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 what, yeah. what is if yeah. say I went well, down, I systematically went down the codes and standards and broke every single one of these. What's the worst they can do to me? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think, I think they can. You're right. They can kick you out, and then the only, the only way that can come back to bite you in the ass that I can see is there are some, uh, there are some agencies, federal agencies, and things like that that require certain, you know, uh, part of the Secretary of Interior standards. Not all the time, but part of these standards is that you belong to uh, 
uh, professional organization. I don't think I've ever actually come across it. I've just heard about it. So because we don't have any other professional organizations, so it's the one thing people in the outside of archaeology see as, okay, this person's a professional. And if you don't have that, then you won't get that business. That being said, there's plenty of other business out there. But then the other thing is there's um, there's the possibility that uh, you know, one of the other organizations, I don't know if the, the RPA has partner organizations and it's the SAA, the AIA, the AAA and the SHA. And I don't know if they share that information with those organizations and you could possibly be kicked out of one of those. I'm just pulling this out of my ass right now. I don't know. But if they share those statistics with their partner organizations, then that could, that could hurt you as well. Now, if you're not a part of any of these things and you put RPA on your thing when you got out of grad school because you said, cool, that's great, and you decided to just go dig things up and sell it on eBay, then, you know, uh, maybe you don't care. And, and that's part of the problem as well with the RPA yeah. is there really isn't enough bite to it, you know? Well, that's also the biggest problem. Both of you guys are bringing up the biggest problem that, you know, employers can still hire you anyway, even if you're not an RPA. And just like you were saying, Stephen, so what if they kick you out? So what? You didn't need it anyway. I mean, mm -hmm. it just shows that you, you know, had a breach of ethics or have been found guilty of causing problems, breaking the rules of archaeology. But really, there are no rules of archaeology if they don't actually have any teeth. Yeah. And I guess I guess the bigger question, too, especially when you talk about harassment or discrimination i mean those things are against the law <laughs> so <laughs> what <laughs> so if you're going to spend time uh following this grievance process up with the rpa why wouldn't you just spend time filing an eeoc complaint you know what i'm saying right, against right. your yeah, employer totally. or whatever well i don't know if you guys have any other advice for people who are not um rpa uh to use the rpa bill i noticed you posted the grievance process here down in our comments yeah. and I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes yeah well uh, just just reiterate just to kind of like summarize my position i i fully agree with bill that uh you know if if somebody's doing something like that wrong if i mean full-on illegal or whatever and even not even if it's just a professional they're not doing the codes and standards of archaeology. Maybe they're just doing bad archaeology or, or, mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, I don't know that the RPA should be your first, you know, your first stop for complaining. Um, it, it's much better if you complain to their employers uh, and, and, and or the cops yeah. if, it's, if it's actually a full-on legal situation. Um, sure. on, on the other hand, if they are their own employer or whatever, um, or... I, I could see where going to the RPA uh, and filing a grievance there could affect how their employer view, views the situation. But I, I would leave it for things that aren't necessarily illegal so much as, you know, immoral, um, unethical as far as like w the way that we hold archaeology to be. Okay, well... As I said, check out the link in the show notes uh, to file a grievance. Don't don't just, like I said, file a grievance because you're upset or you didn't like the company. Make sure it's somebody actually violates the codes of uh, ethics and conduct and, and go over that because that's what the RPA is going to do. You might want to cause somebody trouble just by filing a grievance. Uh, I'm not going to say that probably hasn't been done in the past and maybe there's no teeth to it. You were just angry and this gets maybe this wakes the person up when the RPA contacts him and says somebody has filed a grievance against you. Um, it's all pretty much anonymous as far as I'm concerned. Um, they're not going to know who's filing a grievance against them. But if you're being a dick or they're being a dick to you, then it's probably no secret <laughs> who filed that grievance. But um, so keep that in mind. It could it could backfire on you as well. I don't want to scare people from actually using the system, but make sure you have a leg to stand on. Make sure they've violated ethics and conducts um, that's listed on the RPA. Make sure that it's it's really something that that you think should go through. And I think and I think you'll probably win. Um, I don't know what you'll win. I don't know what you're going to get out of it, but I think you're going to probably win if you do that. So, all right, well, let's take our first break and we will come back and talk about driving 3000 miles for a two week shovel testing job back in a second. Hey, podcast fans and digital archeologists. Have you heard about WildNote? It's a data collection app that works online or offline on your smartphone or tablet, iOS or Android. It allows you to collect field data easily, manage data efficiently, and generate data reports and site records effortlessly. We have a growing list of state site forms built in for your use and some generic forms that will work anywhere. 
check out the shovel testing and photograph forms. You can get a free all-access 30-day trial today by going to wildnoteapp.com. That's wildnoteapp.com for your free 30-day trial. This network is listener-supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.arcpodnet.com slash members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.arcpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.arcpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. All right. Welcome back to the CRM Archaeology Podcast. And we are going to switch gears right now and talk about the title of this episode, or at least the topic that we put down in our, uh, our little topics list here, moving across the country for a better life. And I, I guess what I'll, I'll just frame this discussion right now and, and say what I, what I mean by that statement, because I actually started this card, but I'm sure it was from a discussion that we were all having um, as an idea for a show. You know, I've, when I was shovel bumming, I, I would drive, you know, you, when you're, when you're nearing the end of a project, you, you fill out tons of resume, tons of CVs and applications and whatever you need to do to try to get a new job. And some of them may call, some of them may not call. And then you might have to make some choices. Um, if two or three of them call, I had that happen occasionally. I had fewer call, I think, um, than probably other people because the way that we submitted stuff, my wife was a, was a shovel bum as well. And we would submit and say, Hey, you get one or both of us. Um, I know some couples don't operate that way. They'll split up and take different jobs or one will work a job and the other will just stay in the hotel room if they didn't hire them. I've seen that before, but my wife and I were always like, listen, we have equivalent experience, equivalent ability, and you're going to take us both or you're not. <laughs> and, and most people were happy to get somebody that was going to share a hotel room, especially if we didn't get per diem for hotel rooms because they save money. And, you know, it's just easier that way. But then some companies are reluctant to also hire couples because if there's a, a fight or a snit, you know, we were we weren't even married at the time yet. So but if there's a fight or something like that and you break up, well, now both people are leaving and it's just chaos on the site. So anyway, that's not what we're talking about today. What we're talking about is you get that call and you have to, you know, decide, OK, am I going to take this job that's uh, 500 miles away? and it's a month of field work, or am I going to take this job that's a thousand miles away and it's two weeks of field work? You might be saying to yourself, well, obviously I'm going to take the one month of field work, but you have to decide based on the merits of each job and what's going on, whether or not you're going to take the other job. You have to look at your own career, okay? You have to try to look past your uh, your need to pay your bills. And I know that that's really tough to say and really tough to do, but the two-week job that's further away might actually be better for you in the long run because maybe they have a lot of work coming up. Now, all companies say that, so keep that in mind, but maybe they have a lot of work coming up. Maybe it's a company you've never worked for before in a region you've never worked in before, and this is your foothold in there, which opens up a completely new place that you can work, right? Like if you, for example, if you've never worked in the Great Basin in Nevada, or you've never worked in the Southwest and you get a job there, like my wife and I got a job in New Mexico, which is, you know, the Southwest. It's not Arizona, which is way more difficult to get into, as Bill could attest to. But uh, if we'd gotten a job in Arizona, I would have taken it even for a day just to put Arizona experience on my CV because that's what you need. And it's really tough to get work there because they've got enough people that have that. So but anyway, I would take that short term job that if I can afford it, of course, that affords me that that bullet point on my CV that allows me to be more employable. So, um, guys, any thoughts on this? Uh, I know Stephen, you you worked in the same job for a really long time, so I'm not sure how much shovel bumming you did before that. <laughs> and Bill, I know you traveled around a lot, so uh, Stephen, you unmitted first. So, what are your what are your thoughts on this? I, I think that you need to do like personal like cost benefit analysis sort of thing. Um, yeah. And and I think you uh, summarized uh, the issues quite well that. The job you have to travel more for sometimes will give you non-tangible benefits. Mm -hmm. um, and and I encourage uh, our listeners to actually go out, 
when they're at the field tech level, when they're shovel bumming, and get as much difference of experience as possible. Uh, you know, even if it's in the same region, work for different people, get to know different people, get to know different ways of doing the same thing. Um, and, and going off and, and trying different regions is also good. And, and I understand that, you know, you have to decide what you can and cannot afford. Not everybody can afford to, you know, pack up and move. Um, I spent uh, three months, four months working in Georgia. Um, I basically packed up in the winter, went down to Georgia for four months, um, and, and then basically moved back in the spring. And, and um, that was a very good experience for me. Mm-hmm. The job itself wasn't that great, but like getting to see differences of perspectives and and seeing seeing uh, you know deeper southeast perspective rather than the Midwest that I was familiar with, mm-hmm. um, you know that's really good. And also, you know, more recently, uh, moving up from Wisconsin to uh, uh, Alberta, um, you know, seeing again, you know, different approaches, different, you know, in in sort of different. Uh, Eco region, different cultural regions, and, and uh, you know different uh, legal frameworks. Um, getting to see you know that much more um, different ways of doing it, um, I, I think, uh, adds a lot. And me having not being local, not being from here, because um, a lot of my colleagues have all gone to the same university or you know a very small set of uh, plains-oriented universities. Um, and, and so I feel like I'm bringing something to the table by having been educated and uh, having job experience in other parts of North America. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I think there's a lot of value add in just trying a lot of different stuff and seeing what works and what doesn't for you. That, you know, that, that said, don't go into debt just to get experience, <laughs> you, <laughs> right. you know, like Be if, smart. if you can't actually afford to toss everything you have into your car and, and drive across the country for a short term gig, don't do it. Yeah. Um, you know, like there's a lot of different ways of getting a variety of experience. And I would ar- actually argue that, you know, that should start while you're an undergrad student that, you know, when you're, if if there are any high school students listening to this and, and you're, you're set on doing archaeology, find a program that will give you a lot of opportunities, mm-hmm. a lot of different types of opportunities, because that's really what, you know, where this all comes from. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, I think one of the things you said there, you know, experience in, in different areas and different regions, I've I've always said that as well. And I think that it's so important. And I didn't obviously realize how important it was early on. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I was just going job to job and I would drive literally anywhere for that job. You know, when my wife and I were traveling around together, it made it real easy because we didn't have like a home to look back to. I mean, sure, we had a place that we were living for, well, for two years, we got rid of our apartment and lived out of our our vehicle. We put all our stuff in storage and lived out of our forerunner. So that made it real easy to just travel around to different places because we had a decent vehicle. We could get there in a reasonable amount of time and we were both together. You know, you didn't have that um, that real loneliness that can set in as a shovel bomb and always being on the road and always going to new places and meeting new people. You always have somebody comfortable that you're around, especially early on in your career. You know, there can be a lot of anxiety, you know, being around a whole bunch of new people and things like that. So um, but that that being said, you know, when we came out west to the to the Great Basin, I noticed that especially out west, uh, people tend to, there's enough work out here and the states are bigger that people tend to not leave these areas. Like we'd worked for people in Nevada here that had never worked for other companies. And and one company that barely even hired shovel bumps, they hired people that worked in the, that lived in Reno <laughs> and they didn't really know how to deal with us because they'd never really hired shovel bumps before. And I noticed that had a, a serious effect on how they recorded archaeological sites, how they saw the paperwork that they were doing, and how they saw their methodology. There's like they're like, well, this is the one way that you do archaeology. This is the one way that you record things. This is the one way that you describe things. And I'm like, no, it's really not. Like I've worked in ten different states between here and now, and and now at this point, I've worked in eighteen different states. And there's a lot of different ways to do things, and they all have similarities, and they all have some very big differences, but they all they all fill that experience gap and, and, and make it so you can understand how different things are done, which I think really helps with your descriptive abilities and powers. So I, I would agree. And, and I think, um, 
there, there's a lot of that uh, going on in Calgary um, because everybody goes through, uh, or, uh, you know, the hiring base is coming out of the University of Calgary uh, for mm-hmm. the most part, um, with, with some exceptions. And, and because most of, you know, the, the seasonal uh, field techs that you're hiring are coming out of the same place, they all know how to do basically the same thing in the same way. Yeah. And, and so it heavily, yeah, it does very much shape um, the way people conceive of it. Yeah. Um, and, and it really does help to get out of that. I, I will say, um, you know, just, just kind of on a personal thing, like there, there was a point uh, where I actually did turn down work uh, mm-hmm. because it was like they were in regions I didn't want to go. Right. Like I actually had, yeah. <laughs> I, I actually had the opportunity to work in the Southwest and I was like, yeah, I, I don't like the Southwest. I've been there. I don't really want to go. Um, <laughs> and, and, yeah, you know, and and in in hindsight, I, I that was a massive mistake. Um that, you know, had I done that, I think I would have gotten a lot more um you know, interesting perspectives that are very different from, you know, the midwestern perspectives that I'm used to. And and really, you know, it's it, it would have been a one-year thing or, you know, a, a, you know, from one field season, not, you know, wouldn't have defined my entire career. And, and so even if I, you know, like, I, I know what I'm getting into because I've been to the Southwest, but like mm-hmm. putting up with it for a little bit just to see the different ways of doing the archaeology in the area, I, I think would have been a, um, a really smart thing to do. And mm-hmm. uh, that's what, on my short list of um, things I would do, would have done differently if uh, I had to do it all over. Yeah, I'm glad that you said that about turning work down because um when i was a master student i wanted more than anything to do uh african american archaeology on plantations in the uh like mid atlantic area that was what i spent all this time learning about and what i wanted to do the most and you know i knew it was going to be hot and i knew that it was going to be you know dealing with you know painful pasts and everything but i still was going to do it and i went and worked for uh George Washington's uh, fairy farm there in Fredericksburg, Virginia. Awesome site, awesome archaeology, could not stand living in the East. And I live in California now, so it wasn't like the density or the concentration or whatever of people. It was just the East Coast thing was not my thing. And, you know, some will say Virginia's not really the East. You know, as someone who grew up in Idaho, if you're past, you know, Denver and you can't see the Rocky Mountains, you're in the East. Like you're, you're back East. So once I got back there, I realized that, you know, it wasn't the archeology span and it wasn't the archeologist. It was just being there because the other thing is you're not just, you know, archeology span is what you're doing for eight to 10 hours a day. The rest of the time you're living life in some other town. And if you don't really like being in those towns, like Steven was saying, he's not into the Southwest, then that maybe you would turn down work or maybe you would decide to move on from a place that you didn't like that didn't really have anything to do with the archaeology. It had to do with you didn't want to be in that community. All right. Well, I, I want to talk about, too, um, something that uh, that Stephen mentioned, and this goes back to uh, ROI uh, a little bit, uh, return on investment. And it's it's sort of stage of your career. One thing you can consider before you even have to make that decision, if you're offered, say, two jobs and one is over here and one is over there and one is this length and the other one's that length and they have different pay scales and things like that, it's possible that you want to go to the one that provides you a better career opportunity but maybe doesn't pay as much. And if you're mid to late stage in your career, and I would say mid stage means you've been doing this for four or five years, <laughs> maybe even three years uh, because of the turnover. But if you've been doing this for, uh, you know, let's say three years consistently, even if you've been in the same area, if you're trying to move into a new area, don't think that you necessarily have to take the lowest pay they have on their pay scale just because you're moving to a new area. Make the case on your CV and in the phone call that they'll inevitably they'll inevitably give you. Uh, first off, ask ask what you're going to get paid and ask what the pay range is. You know you don't have to know what other people are getting paid, but ask what the range is. You want to know where you are in that range. It's more important than kind of how much you're getting paid, but where are you in that range? That a lot of companies because you don't have experience with them or because you don't have experience in that region will just instantly put you at the bottom of that pay range. But they also don't like to argue. 
and they understand that archaeology is archaeology is archaeology. True, I might not know the features in a certain area. You know, I may have never, um, you know, recorded a southwestern Pueblo, you know, but I know how to describe things and I can demonstrate that on my CV. I know how to fill out site forms. I know how to measure stuff and describe things in a way that I am confident will take me through to any region. Like I've never worked in Italy either, but I'm pretty sure I could go there and describe things pretty well because I've described lots of things. Now I might have to learn the little idiosyncrasies of how they do stuff. I might have to brush up on the Harris matrix. <laughs> I might have to do some other things, but I'm pretty certain that I can handle it and that at my stage in my career, I shouldn't be starting at the bottom of the pay range, no matter where I go and what I do. So if you have been doing this for a little while, and you want to move into this other one, but like you said, it's like I said, it's it's a it's a little bit lower pay. Try to negotiate a little higher. And if they're just not going to come up to something that you can afford or that you think you're worth, then take the other job. You know, and and they'll understand that. Hey, maybe maybe that'll be a lesson to them for the future. Probably not because they probably got a hundred applications. They don't want to deal with you anyway. If you're going to ask for more money. That being said, if you come with a lot of experience, they might be willing to kick it up 50 cents or a dollar, uh, bring you up more to the middle of that pay range and uh, and go from there. Because they do also don't don't ask for the top of the pay range either if you've never worked in that region, because there is something to be said for regional experience or local experience. Right. So they can hire other people that have that and not have to train you up on those little things. So that is worth a few a few points in their favor, Stephen. Yeah, I think I think you just hit the uh, a really important point that where earlier I was talking about how everybody in Calgary um, pretty much does the same thing, but you know I'm the outsider, so I'm bringing different perspective. The downside to that is that I had to learn how the the implicit things that they already know mm -hmm. that you know that that they don't even know that this is how they do it. You know that they have their own like setup, and of course you would do it this way. Yeah, but like com coming in like there's a lot of like oh crap i'm gonna have to do that and if i it, it goes even beyond me being like so how do you do this because they would shortcut it and not tell me everything i needed to know because some of it was just you know it's just a given that's how you do it yeah um and and be aware that you're gonna have to hustle to to you know figure out how things are done locally mm -hmm. and, and um that you know, you can't just stroll in and be like, well, you know, my way is the right way or, you know, I'm bringing, you know, a different perspective. It'll be good for all y'all. Uh, that doesn't fly, <laughs> you know, um, and, and there is a certain amount of like you are going to have to, you know, there will be a significant learning curve if, if you're going to a region that's that much different from what you're used to. Um, so be be. You know, try to be proactive about that, though, and and get on get on that as soon as you can. Um, and, and you know, hopefully that'll go OK, because um, some, some employers, particularly for field techs and stuff, if you're only being hired on for, you know, on a project by project basis, they want to do as little training as possible. You know, oh, yeah. basically, basically, they want someone who's fully capable out of the box and. Um, because there's no point in investing a month of training into someone who's only going to be around for a month and a half. Yeah, you know, it's, absolutely. It's, it's not cost effective for them. And, and so you need to be as self trainable as possible. Yeah. And that's a great point because if you're new to that region and your, your CV has you in six different States in the last six different jobs, if there is a high training curve that is perceived by this company, you're right, Stephen, they might not want to invest that time in you because you're just going to bounce and, and leave the state right after that project. Um, or they might want to invest a little more in you, pay you a little more money to keep you working in that area. You know, maybe they have some additional things. So you have to it's a game that you have to play that's back and forth. So. Anyway, let's take a break and we will come back on the other side of the break. And I want to talk about some of our um, some of our travel stories and, and things that we've done. So back in a second. 
Hey, this is Chris Webster, and we have advertised for Team Black before. It's another website I've got set up. ArcCert.Black is the website, no www. And we just ended the last segment of the CRMR podcast talking about uh, leveling up your skills. So Team Black, sometime in February, we're going to have a $15 monthly membership that gives you access to our entire catalog of webinars in our back catalog and uh, a discount on live webinars coming up. Check out arccert.black for more information. The thing that strikes me the most since I started teaching is that a lot of students really kind of don't have any idea what the options are because, uh, you know, undergrads have spent all their time taking formal archaeology classes. So I think this is an important service that folks can see that they can really get a job in archaeology and they don't have to get a PhD like me <laughs> and they don't have to teach at a university. <laughs> Just looking through, um, there, there's a huge list of uh, webinars in here. Here's one, getting out of archaeology. Uh, I, I really kind of appreciate that notion of uh, planning for endings. It's something that uh, I have a particular interest in that we're not very good about like how do you end something and uh, approaching a career there's a number of free ones in here I, I think that I'm more interested in a lot of these uh, $20 ones for $15 a month starting in probably sometime in February when I get this set up you will have access to all of our back catalog of videos, the Field Tech Basics and Jobs video, and anything that helps you get a job, basically from a standpoint of, I don't know how to apply for a job, is going to be free on the front page of the website. There won't be any paywall. You won't have to do anything. You can watch that video because I want to help people get a job. But anything that helps you level up your skill set is going to be behind, um, behind the membership. And it's, again, $15 a month and you get access to everything. And we'll have a coupon code for any live webinars have, we have coming up. Up. For example, we did, we've done four webinars so far with Dr. Alan Garfinkel on rock art and uh, shamanism and cosmology and things like that. And those were $50 a seat, and we'll give you a discount on webinars like that. So check out arccert.black to level up your skills and stay employed in archaeology today. Now back to the show. Welcome back to the final segment of episode 156 of the CRM Archaeology Podcast, podcasting for uh, six years, which is pretty great. Anyway, now I want to talk about some of our stories that we have um, traveling from the field. Stephen mentioned one already about uh, traveling to Georgia for the winter um, to work, which is great. Um, when I was first starting out, before I was traveling around with my wife, who became my wife, actually, we were we were just uh, dating at the time, um, but we were you know serious. We were living together. So, you know, we were we were doing everything together at that point. And um, but before that, I, I was by myself for a little while. And I would just like I said, I, I would put out these CVs. And I think one of the one of the biggest things that hit me when we wrote down this episode title was I think it was still my first year or so in archaeology. I did my first job in North Dakota and it was, I was living there and I, one of my professors told me about it. Some CRM firm was working just across the river in East Grand Forks, Minnesota and got me in there somehow cause they knew a person. And so then I started working there and my only qualification, I remember the project manager saying, so, you know, your way around a shovel, right? And I was like, well, I guess I've used shovels before. <laughs> I literally had no experience. And, uh, and she didn't know that my field school was in Africa where we had, you know, Africans doing the digging, which was another story entirely. So anyway, um, I had never dug a unit in my life and I, you know, fake it till you make it. So I, you were paired up with people and I just watched and I studied and I learned and I made sure I knew what I was doing. And then my next job, cause I was just applying for stuff that once I found out about shovel moms, cause they didn't know about it initially, I was just applying for things and I got a job down in downtown Miami working on, uh, and I had no idea how long it was going to be. They said long-term. So they put us in a hotel down there, ended up being down there for six months on this excavation in downtown Miami. Actually, I think it was about seven months. And uh, and then after that, I drove from there and I was actually with this girl at the time and we were on our way back to Seattle because she was I was from Seattle and she was from near there. And we were driving back there and we stopped in Montana to see her grandmother or something like that on the way. I mean, this is like a 3,000 mile drive. And we had been putting out resumes and we got a job in Colorado. So, so we ended up going all the way back to Seattle, dropping off our stuff. Cause we had like a U-Haul. She had a bunch of things and she'd sold her vehicle and we had my vehicle. And so we, we got rid of a bunch of stuff and then pared down a little bit and then went to Colorado for this job. We were on that for about a month and then drove back to Seattle and I dropped her off cause she was doing some other things and we weren't really together anymore. We were never really together to begin with, but that's another story. And then I got another job in Tampa, Florida. 
So I had to drive down to Tampa, did that work, and that sucked over the summer. And then I got a job in Vermont, and I was like, I'm, I went to Vermont not for experience, not for anything else. I went because it wasn't 100 degrees and humid in September. <laughs> it was raining and snowing in Vermont. And I was like, this is where I need to be right now. So I went up there. And then the job I took after Vermont was actually down in South Carolina. And this was for um, this was for a number of reasons. But one of those was was for some career advancement because it was a looking at like a semi-permanent position with this company, which ended up being somewhat of a permanent position. I think I was there for a little over a year um, before uh, who became my wife, uh, Rachel. She was working down there too. And that's the second place we worked together because we worked together in Miami. And uh, and then once, once we decided we didn't like shovel testing anymore, we basically packed up all our stuff and started moving west. And that's another thing you can do with this whole moving across the country bit. We wanted to work out west, but we were already hearing from a lot of experienced people that it's really difficult if you don't have the experience. So my thought was, let's put everything in storage. Let's get rid of our apartment. And let's just, we sold both of our cars and bought a Toyota 4Runner. We leased it actually. And it was brand new. So we knew we could, uh, you know, it would be durable enough to, to handle all the travel we were going to do. And we started working our way across the country to the West. Sure. We filled out some applications for jobs over in the West, but we weren't, they didn't even call us back because we had very little real experience in archeology, span just a few years, a couple of years really. And, and no experience out West. So we got a job in Ohio. We worked out for a little while. Then we got a job in New Mexico, getting a little closer. Then we got a job in uh, Winnemucca, Nevada. And we've been in Nevada ever since. And in fact, just bought a house last month and moved in yesterday. So uh, you never know where these things are going to take you and how they're going to work out. So Bill, I know you have been um, at least all across the West working and and different places. And some of that travel was based on where you were going to school. I know that. But um, what are some of your travel stories? Yeah, so um, I guess when we're talking about ROI, I was always the one that was asking how long they're yeah. interested in uh, hiring me. So the starting wage was you know, important. It had to be enough to actually survive. But I needed to know, um, first of all, if there was an end to the project. So I was always aiming for jobs that would take me like all summer or whatever. And then I was always looking for ones with the possibility of being hired permanently because I guess I didn't want to put all my stuff. I mean, I like the idea of minimalism as far as watching <laughs> shows about minimalism, but me actually doing it, that's where like that's where we draw the line. Right. You know, I don't want to sell all my stuff, right? <clears throat> so, uh as a I mean, I guess I was lucky cuz I went to school in the West, so all our stuff was already organized around the West and it wasn't hard to, you know, meet up with forest service archeologists and, you know, BLM archeologists and other stuff when you were in school. So there was always kind of that connection. Then knowing that you come from a Western school, you know, they, they know that you've already studied all those cultures and the culture history of those areas. That's, you know, part of your classes. So mm -hmm. for me, like I was mentioning earlier, I wanted to work in the East. <laughs> I was trying to go the other way. I was trying to get the experience to go back east. And so, uh, you know, there was a, there's a lot of historical archaeology in the east. And um, I kind of I started off doing prehistoric archaeology, but I took a historical archaeology field school as a undergrad. And so at that point, I realized, you know what, this is more interesting than uh, prehistoric archaeology in a lot of other ways. And because it was all new, I started going in that direction. So back east, there's a lot of historical archaeology, you know, living museums and stuff. And so I worked for a summer in Fredericksburg. And then when I came back to Idaho to finish school, uh, you know, I was trying to finish my degree. And I knew that I wanted to do archaeology all the time. And everybody was telling me at the time, I guess this is dubious now, considering that uh, mm -hmm. government closures are like one of the main political tools now. But, you know, back in the early 2000s, getting a job with the government, everybody was like, oh, yeah, you want to get a job with the Forest Service. You want to get a job with the BLM. Well, I still have never cracked the government job hiring system. I have no idea what they're looking for. Uh, and I would I applied to numerous government jobs across the country and got nothing but when it came to crm they were interested in calling you back to work on projects you know if they needed people right then so it took a while to finally get a crm job but um you know after i started to get calls from companies who wanted to hire me permanently yeah. then the the ones that were hiring for two week jobs or you know three or four weeks that kind of i was like no i know that somebody actually wants to hire me you know for real 
And so I took a job in Seattle where in the West, the opposite is true when it comes to prehistoric and historical archaeology. There's tons of people who have done a lot of prehistoric archaeology, and they know a lot about uh, you know, pre-contact mm. sites. And there's very few people who know about cans and historic roads and ditches and stuff. And so yeah. in the West, that was really my key to getting hired on more permanently. So I, I did work all across the West, but it was for companies that were you know stationed in in one town. I, I worked in Seattle for a long time and worked all over Washington. And then I moved to Arizona and worked for a larger company that had offices all over uh, um, the West. And I, I also worked for some other companies in Arizona mm-hmm. that were more focused on Arizona. So that's really how, what kept me going, trying to find the jobs that have permanency. And so, uh, you know, my moves, they were never totally across the country, but they were like, okay, you're, you know, your wife and uh, my sister used to live with us for a while are going to completely relocate from Seattle to Tucson. So they weren't just driving there in a car to stay there. It was like, how do I get a kid enrolled in school? And uh, what's a neighborhood where I can uh, get the best uh, school, but also my wife be able to get to work and how far are we going to have to drive and can we use, you know, public transportation and stuff. And so it's the same thing as moving from Arizona to California, Mm -hmm. but my moves were always (laughs) much more permanent with a lot of more crap and a bigger backache at the end. Yeah. (laughs) And it always involved trying to find good schools and good neighborhoods and stuff. So in that, in that world, you know, the, the ROI of moving is the number one and only thing, you know, about experience. It's great for us to get experience in other places. And, you know, before I had a family and everything, I was willing to take these projects and go all over the place. But then once I had a family, it was more like, how serious are you at hiring me for the longest time you can possibly promise? You know, you say you have a lot of work coming up. What specifically kind of projects are we talking about? Are we talking about multi-month data recovery where I'm going to have 12 months on just one project alone? Are we talking, you know, extensive multi-year or sole service contracts with, you know, mining companies or, you know, transportation departments where I can actually be here? You've got mm-hmm. a 12-month contract with the Air Force. Like, those are the kind of things that I was interested in. So it changed more from trying to get experience to trying to get a more steady job. But, you know, that only happened after I already had a graduate degree and, and quite a bit of experience yeah. uh, doing CRM before that. Yeah, that's uh, that's all a, a really good point about uh, moving around and your your other commitments. You know, one of my one of the impetuses to me starting my own company was uh, my wife had actually gotten out of archaeology um, shortly before that, and I knew that if I wanted any home time, I was going to have to control that. You know, um, I was either going to have to control that, or you know, even even archaeology companies here in Reno that hire you full time, the I mean, you, you might be a project manager, but you're still going to be out in the field a lot. You know, I mean, you're going to be out there doing stuff in the field a, a lot and you're going to be a long ways away. You're not going to be spending the night uh, back at home <laughs> and uh, and it's usually 10 on four off. So I was like, you know, I'm, I'm willing to do that kind of on my schedule, um, things that I can do. And I, I don't really want to do that on somebody else's schedule anymore and be, uh, be beholden to that. So that's why I started my own thing. But yeah. Well, the the biggest thing is my wife. She's the one who holds it all together. Right uh, now, she, now, she travels also sometimes for her job. But back when I was doing CRM, it was like I was out of the actual house six months. I mean, when my son was born, I was out for like nine months of his first mm-hmm. entire year of being out yeah. in the field. So that that's you know, you don't get up to those jobs where you get to stay at home after you know without doing significant amount of field work and effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Steven, I, I'm curious as we're talking about all this, you know, you worked for a long time in Wisconsin and how important was it to you that somebody, you know, when we're talking about experience and, and hiring somebody that comes in, or did you guys even have to hire too many people from outside the region or did you have a local pool of people that you pulled from, from your stuff? And, and if you did hire outside the region, how important, how important was regional knowledge versus just experience in CRM? Yes. Well, uh, to answer your first question, <laughs> uh, we did both. Yeah. Um, th- we had a, uh, when I was in Wisconsin, we had a very excellent uh, skilled uh, pool of people who would just keep coming back. Like I, I couldn't get rid of mm-hmm. them. They, they just, 
show up every spring and and uh <laughs> you know and, and which is great cuz uh, that gave us a lot of continuity and um um they had a lot of experience and and they had a lot of experience working with us and uh but then we would often have like crews of like 15 20 people cuz we were doing a lot of large uh surveys and mm-hmm. so we would have those people and then we would bring in people from outside the region or uh, from around the Midwest. And, and often, you know, you'd get people who, again, move across, move across the country uh, to work for a few months with us. And uh, as far as like the hiring goes, I don't necessarily needed or I didn't necessarily need a uh, someone to know the local chronology all that well. I don't need you to yeah. know what what particular type a projectile point is i need you to recognize that it's a projectile point <laughs> you know what i mean so yeah, so it's like, yeah. it's like do you know what a flake is do you know what shatter <laughs> is do, you know like on, on the basic level i need you to be able to identify an artifact from something that's mm-hmm. not an artifact and and it seems obvious that you know when when you say that but you'd be surprised right like if if you're not used to yeah. these particular types of material um, sometimes, you know, a little bit gets lost in translation. Or if you're, you know, your primary focus is uh, historic archaeology and you've never really done any sort of lithic analysis, can you recognize a flake? Or vice versa. Like if, if you're not, you know, I, I mean, yeah, you, you recognize a can for, for being a can, but do you recognize that can as an <laughs> artifact versus like, no, this is from the 80s. And And so like really more than having like the local regional you know like under uh knowledge experience like i, I just need mm-hmm. to be able to recognize a feature or artifacts or you know and, and be able to dig holes you know from there if you want to learn more about the local regional stuff yeah, we can talk you know mm-hmm. like i can explain stuff as you find it i can um do that sort of thing yeah that's that's a good point to make too Stephen, about you know prehistoric versus historic because if you are early in your career you, you might not have a wide variety of experience in the first couple of years. Um, but then again, you might, I don't know, like my first couple of years was almost all excavations and focused solely on prehistoric artifacts. And while I could obviously recognize a can or a piece of glass as it is, that's easy to do. But can you recognize it as historic and describe it in the field adequately using the right terminology? Probably not. And it's even worse for people who had a primary historic focus early on. You might not even know what a flake looks like. It just looks like the other rocks. You might not know what a projectile point fragment looks like. It just looks like other rocks. It's not as easy as picking out a can. And then when you do find something, well, you don't even know how to describe it. You don't know what the component parts are. So if you have a lot of experience early on in one thing, but not in another, and you want to be more employable, well, you need to do your research and study and and get the right books and watch the right webinars, follow Team Black, and, and we'll teach you how to do those things. Bill. Yeah, maybe we, I, I guess I'll take blame for that too, because the, <laughs> you know, as a professor, our, the, the amount of stuff that you have to teach someone uh, t- that wants to go into archaeology is astronomically high. But I do think that there should be some more, you know, instead of just talking about Mayan temples, start talking about the actual artifacts and, you know, how you identify those different things. Or, you know, if you're going to do some kind of North American prehistory, rather than just only talking about these large, large esoteric aspects of being, you know, an, uh, an archaic hunter-gatherer in Missouri, maybe start talking about the actual things and how we even know that that exists besides carbon-14 dates. But going on to it, that that autodidactic, autodidactic learning that needs to happen, Mm-hmm. There is no such thing as prehistoric and historical when it comes to cultural resource management because you're just talking about things and their significance. And if you can't identify things, then you don't really have a way to talk about significance. Anyone who's taken a bunch of courses on prehistoric stuff needs to double compensate on historical and yeah. vice versa. I mean, that if you want to actually keep getting paid, you need to be well versed in both. <laughs> and then the other unspoken thing that everybody needs to know about is geomorphology and sediments, soil and sediments. I mean, that's like, Oh yeah. There's so much discussion about artifacts and cultures and stuff. And even though I'm saying that we need to do more on artifact identification, no one is even talking about the dirt and the dirt is the, Mm -hmm. is the main thing that you need to know when it comes to anything. If you could know that around the world, it's understanding sediments, silt, you know, sand and, uh, 
the other uh, distribution of gravels and, and the way those things are formed and, and how they're created. Like that thing right there needs to be the foundation discussion and then everything else builds upon that. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, we, I guess I can link right now to three main books that if you get them, you'll have a pretty good idea of historic artifacts, prehistoric and um, soils and sediments. Great. Yeah, send me those links and we'll put them in the show notes. And uh, if you've got any advice for new archaeologists or any experiences you want to talk about, uh, send me an email, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Of course, all our Twitter handles and the blogs that we write can be found at uh, archpodnet.com forward slash podcast. And you can find the notes for this episode at podcast forward slash 156. All right. Well, that's it. Thank you, everyone. And uh, thanks, guys. And again, get those comments in and uh, let us know your experiences. We'll see you next time for our six-year anniversary episode, episode 157, where it'll just be another regular day on the podcast, probably. (laughs) Back in two weeks. That's it for another episode of the CRM Archaeology Podcast. Links to some of the items mentioned on the show are in the show notes for this podcast, which can be found at www.archpodnet.com slash podcast. Please comment and share anywhere you see the show. If you'd like us to answer a question on a future episode, email us. Use the contact form on the website or just email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Support the show and the network at arcpodnet.com slash members. Get some swag and extra content while you're there. Send us show suggestions and interview suggestions. We want this to be a resource for field technicians everywhere, and we want to know what you want to know about. Thanks to everyone for joining me this week. Thanks also to the listeners for tuning in, and we will see you in the field. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle, in Reno, Nevada, at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.